In the early morning of April 19, 1995, a 26-year-old Gulf War vet from upstate New York woke up inside his car, where he'd spent the night, and sat down and opened a military MRE, or meal ready to eat, of cold spaghetti from a plastic pouch. He later told reporters he did this because he needed the strength, because he knew he was in for, quote, a firestorm. This man's name was Timothy McVeigh. Later that morning, he would go on to blow up the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people and injuring over 600 more. Years later, after he recounted this full story, reporters couldn't help but fixate on this detail of the cold MRE. Why is it that Timothy McVeigh's choice of breakfast seems to tell us so much about him? Why does the idea of purposely eating cold spaghetti before committing an act of mass terrorism give us the creeps? That has everything to do with what breakfast means to us. I'm Asim Shukla. And I'm Ted Joya. And this is If You'll Indulge Me, a podcast about food and language. And today, for our second episode, we're going to be talking about breakfast. Ah, uh, breakfast. Despite the propaganda that it's the most important meal of the day, <laughs> it often seems inconsequential and afterthought. I didn't even have breakfast today. I just had coffee. Same here. But actually, breakfast has a remarkably fascinating history that tells both the very story of civilized eating and reveals more than any other meal how we believe food defines who we are. I didn't even notice before researching this episode just how often and how technically we talk about breakfast. In fact, there's this whole genre of reporting that just tells us what great individuals had for breakfast. <laughs> it does always seem to be a relevant detail about people, doesn't it? I remember this one series from the London Olympics that was about what each athlete had for breakfast, and there's this one searing detail of an American wrestler who would have a protein shake made from colostrum, which is the milk a cow gives after having birth. Oh, wow. I know, it's just so visceral. But that's the kind of dedication that wins the Olympics, man. Or for another example, consider presidential breakfasts. There's a weird obsession with what presidents had for breakfast. Like, apparently Theodore Roosevelt ate 12 hard-boiled eggs every single morning. That squares with my image of Theodore Roosevelt somehow. Exactly. Calvin Coolidge ate cold, boiled wheat while having Vaseline spread on his forehead. Okay. <laughs> vivid, right? <laughs> Very vivid. And my personal favorite is Richard Nixon's favorite breakfast was yogurt, fruit, and cottage cheese with ketchup. I mean, that's just an image of perversity right there. Depravity at breakfast. Right. <laughs> but we just love these small details because they seem to reveal something essential about these men. But to understand what breakfast means to us today, we have to go back to the beginning of breakfast. Okay. And the beginning is 10,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent during the Neolithic Revolution. Oh, so we're really going back to the beginning. Yeah, that's when people started to domesticate crops and agriculture was born, kind of setting the foundation for what we call civilization today. So people have been eating forever. Like, why, is, why are we tracing the history of breakfast to this period? Yeah, obviously people have always needed to eat, but breakfast didn't exist couldn't exist as a thing until you had agriculture, because having something lying around ready to eat in the morning, as opposed to going out to hunt or pick food whenever you were hungry, that required agriculture. In a weird way, like, breakfast is the only meal that's a direct byproduct of civilization. Fascinating. I like that. I mean, and it's, you see this all across the world. 
Now, it's worth remembering that there's nothing necessarily common about what people are actually eating across the world. Some mm -hmm. people eat sweet, some people eat savory breakfasts, some breakfasts are cold, some are hot, some are grain-based, some protein-based. What is common is that breakfast everywhere tends to be really routine, the same kinds of food day in and day out. And it's this routine nature of breakfast that has made the meal, in an odd way, this sort of wonderful mirror for society's most moralizing impulses across history. Wow. Bold claim there, Ted. You want to back that up? It may seem bold, but for evidence of this, look no further than the word breakfast. The English word breakfast has morality embedded in its DNA. The word literally means to break the fast. Of course. Of course, and it came into the English language in the 1400s to replace the previous morgen meta, uh, which means morning meal. In the Middle Ages, Catholic doctrine um, restricted people to only two meals a day, like one midday meal and an evening meal, and kind of frowned upon breakfast as sort of a sign of gluttony or indulgence. Huh. Yeah. That's surprising, actually. I know, right? But yeah. like, breakfast was only allowed to children, the elderly, the feeble, <laughs> and uh, poor manual workers. It was just sort of like looked down upon as sort of low class. The Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas even condemned breakfast oh, wow. in Summa Theologica, which is his sort of like masterwork of theology. He said it committed the sin of prepopere, which means like gluttony. In a section on fasting from Summa, three sections after my personal favorite, of shamefacedness. <laughs> Not a term that's retained its popularity in the 21st century. No, no, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's a fun to hear about that word. Exactly, okay. right? Um, hopefully it's in for a comeback, shamefacedness. But Aquinas writes, Leviticus says on the Sabbath, you shall afflict your souls. Hence, in order that those who fast may feel some pain and satisfaction for their sins, the ninth hour is suitably fixed for their meal. The ninth hour is like 3 p.m. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's a pretty long wait. But it wasn't, you didn't just have a long wait. There was like strong restrictions in what you could even have for breakfast. And later Aquinas explained, The church forbades those who fast to partake of those foods which both afford most pleasure to the palate and are a very great incentive to lust. Specifically like meat, eggs, and milk. Anything originating from animal flesh. Because generally speaking, eating flesh meat affords more pleasure than eating fish. And therefore is forbidden. Uh, that's not fair. I've, I'm vegetarian and I have a lot of fun. Clearly, Thomas Aquinas could not have imagined the veggie burrito at Taqueria Cancun. But is it a very great incentive to lust, or just like a great incentive to lust? Uh, that is a theological matter on which I have no opinion. Okay, yeah. Basically, hell for Thomas Aquinas would be like 21st century San Francisco brunch. Mm. <laughs> you've got all the, you've got meat, eggs, and dairy, and gays, all mixed together, and not a single touch of shamefacedness. <laughs> That's true. But in the 15th and 16th century, breakfast was stigmatized. People like knew it existed, but it wasn't something people talked about or even named in scholarly accounts. It was an irrelevant at best and shameful at worst kind of detail. Exactly. Well, no wonder. I mean, historically, until the 15th or 16th century, people regularly boozed at breakfast. Yeah, wasn't that, like, the only thing you ate for breakfast? So in some places, in, like, Egypt or Sumer back in the day, you just drank beer for breakfast. Filled you up, I guess. But caffeine changed all that. Ah. Attitudes started to change towards breakfast in the 17th century, at the same time when coffee, tea, and chocolate migrated to Europe. 
um, the church legalized breakfast as sort of an industrious activity linked with caffeine when they changed the fasting rules in 1662, specifically to allow for chocolate. Wow. What a great day that was. (laughs) Exactly. And like newly legitimized and newly caffeinated, breakfast exploded in popularity, especially in England in the 17th century. And you see this rise of breakfast rooms and a sort of culinary renaissance, inventing all sorts of new breakfast dishes, pairing meat, eggs, and all sorts of hearty combinations. So this famously greasy, you know, full English breakfast is a phenomenon that only goes back like 350 years. Exactly. Caffeine paved the way for modern breakfast. But I could talk about English breakfast history all day. Sure. But I'm curious if the hefty moral baggage that's such a part of the English word for breakfast is present in other languages. Ah, I'm so glad you asked, this being my area of specialty. Here we go. So let's break this down. Focusing just on European languages, there are roughly three categories of words for breakfast, etymologically speaking. The first is the most ancient and widespread category of words that predate any kind of moral connotations around breakfast. And this includes everything from, like, ancient Egyptian word jaur, which means mouth cleansing. Mm-hmm. In fact, the pharaoh had an officer specifically designated for his mouth cleansing. That sounds like responsible government spending to me. I just have visions of Trump trying to sell a breakfast supervisor to, like, Mitch McConnell or something. <clears throat> We're going to have the best breakfast supervisor. He's going to supervise it better than anyone else. Listen, listen to me, Mitch. I know this is not part of your overall strategy, but with the breakfast that we're going to supervise, it's going to be like no other breakfast you've seen, Mitch. (laughs) It's going to be the greatest mouth cleaning in America, in the world. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. Um, You know, the ancient Greek akratisma, which means little something unmixed, Mm -hmm. which referred to wine. Odysseus would have wine and bread like a hobo in the morning, but he kind of was one. Um, It fits. It fits. Uh, Latin yentaculum, a little something on an empty stomach. And also words from modern European languages like German Frühstück or Russian Zaftrak, which means a little something early. So words that have been around forever talking about an early morning bite. Named for either the the time of day or the the little snack size. Exactly. Then there's a second category of words, which includes words like English, which refer to the breaking of some kind of fast. And these are words that date from the medieval period. In fact, don't they all, like, come from the same Latin word? Yes, kind of, actually. So there's this Latin word, disyayunare, which means to break a fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that gives us Spanish desayuno. It gave us the old French word, disne, which Mm -hmm. eventually became the word, dine, and dinner in English mm-hmm. moved later and later in the day, and then they reinvented a new word using the same root, which was déjeuner. Isn't that lunch? Yes. So that also moved ahead in the day. Okay, so an- another step. And now so <laughs> what they call breakfast is the petit déjeuner. <laughs> so the word for fasting literally provided almost all the meal names for Romance languages. Almost. 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 At least for the French. Definitely for the French, who in this realm at least, have no imagination for food. (laughs) And then there's the third category of words, which date from the early modern period when caffeine was the star of breakfast. So you've got the Portuguese café de manhã, which means morning coffee. Mm -hmm. You've got the Turkish kahvalti, which means after coffee. Hmm. Uh, And you actually have the Belgian-French word. They didn't want to say petit déjeuner. They say café déjeuner, which means the coffee breakfast. Oh, Belgians. So to sum up, ancient words... No religious baggage, medieval words, all about breaking a fast, and early modern words having to do basically with coffee. 
What about non-Western words for breakfast? Do they reveal another way of thinking about the meal? Uh, mostly not. <laughs> most of the non-Western words for breakfast fall into this sort of first, most ancient category. So like in Japanese, you have asagohan, which means morning rice, which is more or less what you say in Korean and Chinese. In Hindi, you use the word nashta, which just literally means snack. It's that insignificant. I guess the one big exception to this that I know of is the Arabic word iftar, which actually mm-hmm. does mean breaking the fast. So did you find any larger trends in your research? Uh, no, not really. Are you telling me that our superficial Googling of uh, Korean etymologies did not reveal any universal truths about the human condition? I fear not. Wait, why did we get into podcasting in the first place? (laughs) Why, Ted, you say that as if cheap aha moments were a common device in podcasts. I was just hoping it would be a common device in our podcast. (laughs) But I guess the one thing to to take away from your non-findings is that it's like (laughs) mainly in the West, and especially Anglophone cultures, that like breakfast is like a controversial moral topic. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, because if anything, in the West over the last 200 years, the moral battleground has only intensified over breakfast. Is that so? Like, not just in, like, what we eat, but how we talk about what we eat. Okay. Now we no longer debate breakfast in the pulpits on Sunday morning, but just turn on the TV and you'll just be assaulted. We, we debate it on Sunday morning talk shows, BuzzFeed listicles, and Saturday morning cartoon commercials. It's almost impossible to escape the debate. About what foods are best to eat at breakfast. Exactly. Well, I don't see why that debate exists. Obviously, the healthiest food on the planet is Greek yogurt. (laughs) Yeah, in 2017. Ah, yes. If you were in the 80s, that food would obviously have been oatmeal. Unquestionably. Who could doubt that creepy Quaker guy? Or if you're in the 1950s, amazingly, it was cream of wheat. (laughs) And in the 1920s, it was grapefruits. Huh. And of course, in the 1890s, it was breakfast cereal. Well, yeah, cereal is like the original righteous breakfast food because it was literally invented by religions to kind of promote good behavior. Like back in the 19th century, there was this wave of kind of morally driven health crusades in the so-called clean living era. Oh, that sounds fun. I know, right? Wish I could go back to that. It's a great time. Are we in the dirty living area? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. (laughs) But like at this time, there was a bunch of new religions arising, especially Seventh-day Adventists, who were promoting these clean living lifestyles. It led to the birth of sanitarians and these sort of restrictive diets that had people abstain from meat, caffeine, sugar, alcohol, basically anything enjoyable is out. And the most famous practitioner was John Kellogg, who was a direct follower of the founder of Seventh-day Adventism and created this sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, uh, where he invented cornflakes for his sickly patients with dental problems as the ideal moral food that would supposedly curb unnatural appetites or cravings. What kind of cravings are we talking about? What are these unnatural cravings? Yeah, I, I can't imagine. Everything fun, but I even read in one account that he supposedly hoped that the cereal would be a cure for masturbation, which is why no one has masturbated since 1898. (laughs) (laughs) Off the table. I would would never dream of it. I mean, there's obviously a long history of, you know, cereal inspiring social change, you know, Fruit Loops solved homosexuality in 1926. (laughs) Fun fact, like, Count Chocula ended racism in the 50s, you know. Oh, man. Only the Count could do it. That's right. (laughs) Absolutely. 
Uh, our Captain Crunch single-handedly ended Somali piracy. Exactly. With, with his bravery. <laughs> Lucky Charms, of course, were instrumental in ending the troubles in Ireland. <laughs> the one thing both sides could agree on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we may not agree upon religion, but heart stars, horseshoes, clovers, and balloons. All of me Lucky Charms. We can all get behind that. Whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic, they're magically delicious. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Two episodes in, I think we've already hit rock bottom. But... In all seriousness, our fixation on the moral nature of breakfast has become embedded not just in our culture, but in our language, in our literature. When you look how our society talks about breakfast, there's this sense it's become caught up with our essential selves, our mortal souls, if you will, uh, (laughs) in a way that even uh, Thomas Aquinas could never have imagined. Another bold claim from Ted Joya. (laughs) Tell us more. Well, to start, just look at our literature. Like, in novels and movies, breakfast is sort of used as shorthand for character. It makes this a great device for giving a first impression. Mm. Melville introduces the famous cannibal Queequeg in Moby Dick in a chapter aptly titled Breakfast, showing him tearing into some scandalously undercooked meat at the breakfast table. Merceau in uh, The Stranger gives his existentialist breakfast, I cooked some eggs and ate them out of a pan. Clearly demonstrating his own disregard for his life. And we all know James Bond's martini order, but in the books, his breakfast order is equally distinctive. Very strong coffee from DeBry in New Oxford Street, brewed in an American Chemex, of which he drank two large cups, black and without sugar, served with a speckled brown egg from a French Moran's hen, boiled for exactly three and a third minutes because it amused him to think there was such a thing as a perfect boiled egg. That is pithy, a shaken not stirred. <laughs> not a lot of breakfast order scenes in the Bond movies. Yeah, I think the three minute and 20 second scene of James Bond just watching an egg boil was likely to have been left on the Dr. No cutting room floor. And consider the iconic opening scene of Breakfast at Tiffany's. There actually wasn't a breakfast scene in Capote's original novel, but they added one for the opening credits of the movie, where our first vision of Holly is Audrey Hepburn pulling up outside Tiffany's on Fifth Avenue in a cab to eat a Danish out of a paper bag in full elbow-length silk opera gloves, a black Givenchy evening gown, and a pearl necklace as she stares longingly into the jeweler's window. It's a great image. I know. You have a sense you're about to watch a timeless movie when you start like that. (laughs) But all these scenes swirl around a deeper truth, this sort of instinctive belief embedded in our culture that links what you eat for breakfast to who you are as a person. Breakfast is a window to a person's private self. A beautiful thought, Ted. But we haven't really answered why breakfast, more than any other meal, seems to reveal character in kind of a universal way. And I think that to answer that, we have to recall that breakfast is the most routine meal of the day. And it's people's routines, or lack of routines, their private habits, that give us some kind of insight into who they are. Lunch and dinner, you know, you're supposed to change them up. Breakfast, not so much. And this is why in English we have a number of sayings that make a link between breakfast and how industrious you are. It does make a good metaphor. Right. Things like bring home the bacon, wake up and smell the coffee... You know, doing blank before breakfast. You know, the idea that it's so easy you just get rid of it before the morning Don't meal. even eat breakfast. Right. A breakfast of champions, of course. Originally an advertising slogan for Wheaties, by the way. But to me, the expression that makes the association between breakfast and character most explicit is this formulation of sayings where, you know, blank eats blank for breakfast. 
This is a whole genre. I eat guys itself. like you for breakfast. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, the implication is that the eater so totally dominates the eat-e that you dispatch them as part of a nutritive morning meal. So this is exactly what's going on when Judge Judy says, I eat morons like you for breakfast. You're going to be crying before this is over. Or when the tough guy in SpongeBob SquarePants says, ah. I had a bowl of nails for breakfast this morning without any milk. SpongeBob fantasy. Shh. Anyway, so if you take this metaphor for dominance literally, you're going to miss the point. Just like Happy Gilmore does when the guy tells him, I eat pieces of shit like you for breakfast, and he responds, you eat pieces of shit for breakfast? Indeed. Anyway, see if you notice any instances of this saying or any other breakfast expressions Ted or I might have missed, and see if you have any favorites. My personal favorite, which came from the world of politics, is uh, some months ago, Fox News had this headline, Bibi Netanyahu eats lib reporters for breakfast. He doesn't eat journalists for lunch. He has Hamas for lunch. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Hamas with pita, if you will. (laughs) But yeah, even this silly Netanyahu headline gets at this overarching idea that breakfast is at once trivial yet fundamental. The thing you do before you start the day's real work, but still somehow so important. Hunter S. Thompson called breakfast a psychic anchor, and I like that. Unlike lunch and dinner, there's something about breakfast that says something about the direction of your life. It's the start of your day's journey. A portentous meal, you might say. Indeed. It prepares us for what's ahead. Yeah, and I think perhaps it's no coincidence that the standard final meal for American astronauts about to blast off an American death row inmates about to be executed is the same. It's steak and eggs. Huh. So both our greatest heroes and our greatest villains get the same bold send-off for their own leaps into the unknown. Whether it's a kingly meal of steak and eggs or a grim repast of cold military spaghetti, mm. breakfast sets the stage for what comes next. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Next time. I hope you enjoyed our suitably profound... Ending. It's pretty profound. And I entered my Roman Mars. What I'm, what I'm saying is very significant.